What does it mean to make something? How do effort and time allow for our plans to come to fruition? In his poem, Upon Seeing a Pomegranate Orchard, Matthew Andrews visits Adam and Eve after their expulsion to tackle what it means to build and rebuild post-fall. Welcome to episode 14 of Exegesis, featuring the work of Matthew Andrews. Upon Seeing a Pomegranate Orchard by Matthew Andrews I can't help but think of our ancient parents contending with their garden, their hands scarred and calloused from work, their brows slick with perspiration, every speck of skin hardened with grime from hundreds of years of toiling, of watching, of waiting, all to find barren branches sagging only with failure, year after year, with no holy water to moisten their roots, until finally ruby fruits appeared like gems on their limbs, and upon plucking one and ripping it apart with weathered hands, there were seeds more numerous than stars spilling outwards, oozing red like shed blood, and the pleasing thought, I made this myself. Published in June of 2020, Matthew Andrews is a private investigator and writer who lives in Modesto, California. In addition to the Jewish Literary Journal, his poetry has appeared or is forthcoming in Echo Theo, Orange Blossom Review, Sojourners, Amethyst Review, and One Art, among others. His debut chapbook, I Close My Eyes and I Almost Remember, is forthcoming from Finishing Line Press. He can be contacted at matthewjandrews.com. Let's hear from him now. When did you write this? Where were you when you wrote this? What kind of uh, mindset were you in? Uh, this could be physical, uh, emotional, etc. Sure. Uh, so I wrote this, I think, two, two to three years ago. Uh, and this was a what ended up being one of many poems that I wrote over uh, a period of several years that were uh, mostly based on biblical stories, uh, both from the um, the, the Jewish Bible and, and the Christian scriptures. Um, I had kind of reached a point for me where I was uh, just really spiritually out of focus. Uh, I'd gone through a, a very difficult year and just feeling spiritually disconnected uh, was kind of a cherry on top. And so I, I'm deliberately trying to re-engage with uh, some of these stories that I had grown up with uh, and had kind of grown stale or that I had grown skeptical of in some way, uh, just to try to kind of see them in a new light and, and reflect on them maybe differently than I would have before. Uh, so this came during that period, uh, sometime about two or three years ago. Uh, specifically, as far as specific inspirations for this, it's obviously based on uh, Adam and Eve uh, and that story. But I live in uh, the Central Valley in California, which is a very big agricultural region. So every time I leave town, it's uh, orchards and vineyards, uh, primarily where I live, uh, nut trees and you know, nuts and tree fruits. Uh, and so there's always something uh, kind of amazing about orchards and just how symmetrical they are. It's just these, you know, you've taken these wild plants and, you know, somehow condensed them down to these very neat rows and columns and, and trees that all look about the same height and have the same productivity. And it's just, I've always been fascinated by that uh, kind of, like, taming of nature. Uh, and so that was big in my mind as I was writing this particular piece. Interesting. So there's this idea of symmetry or, or taming nature that's occurring at the same time you're trying to I guess, redefine or re-explore um, these texts that you hadn't really dealt with in a while. Um, so you're kind of, it's, there's, it seems like there's a parallel there, like of, 
you know, sort of reorganizing or organizing in the first place, perhaps, um, of text with physical landscape or physical landscape and the text being sort of uh, put together. Um, you were saying that, that there was a, a period of, of of reflecting on these texts. Was there a prompt specifically for that or was this like a, a general, yeah, it's time to revisit these things? Uh, it was just, yeah, it was more of a desire to to try to find some authenticity in something that, that felt stale. So it wasn't necessarily a, like, this is a project for me. It's just uh, kind of where I started to, to gravitate with uh, the poems I was writing at the time, and it just kind of turned into something I did pretty regularly over a long period. Uh, so I tried to... Uh, more specifically, I was I was dealing with a lot of doubt about like are, are these stories are these stories true and if they're not true factually are they still true in some way uh, and so I spent a lot of time trying to uh, to almost ground myself in these stories like to to look at them in a more realistic way uh, so whereas this story we we read from childhood has has kind of you know mythic almost overtones to it, uh, you know, trying to think, like, if, if Adam and Eve were real people, uh, what would it have been like for them? Or if another character in another story, what would it have been like to be in that person's shoes or to experience what that person's experiencing and, and try to attach some level of realism to it? Uh, and, you know, in doing that kind of helped me connect with those stories a little bit more in a way that I haven't really been connecting with them uh, for some time. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that you're talking about the realism within these stories because Adam and Eve are are strange in the sense that they're not really people, right? They are kind of mythical. I mean, they don't have parents, right? The the first real people, quote unquote, are, are their sons, Cain and Abel, and uh, they don't seem to have they don't have parents really, so it's kind of hard to think of them as sort of people in that traditional way. So it's interesting how you've kind of infused that reality into. Uh, these archetypes, let's say, uh, following on your uh, sort of framing. Um, so I like that. It's interesting. But you did bring up the um, uh, Adam and Eve here, uh, but as well as the New Testament as sort of being uh, involved. I didn't – I'm not familiar. I, I've read the New Testament at points, but I'm not so familiar. I didn't know if it had a different kind of traditional outlook on Adam and Eve or if that was even discussed or if it was kind of the same uh, um, as a Jewish perspective, as the traditional Jewish perspective. Uh, so that's an interesting question. So I, I of course, um, I, I don't have that Jewish perspective myself, but a lot of times in the, in the Christian tradition, it, Adam and Eve are, are framed as, as being, you know, the, the failure, so to speak. You know, God's perfect creation, and then there's this freight, and then there's sin, and then it's just downhill from there. Uh, whereas Jesus is kind of framed as the anti-Adam, in a way. Uh, the one who kind of puts things back together. Uh, so there's a real sense of, uh, of in that tradition, I think, of Adam and Eve being uh, the ones who really let things down uh, and kind of kicked off this mess. Uh, so it's uh, fair or not, uh, that's kind of the, the way they're framed in that tradition, uh, which is, which is interesting. I, I don't, uh, you, as I'm writing, you know, these kinds of, of poems, that's kind of, you know, what I'm thinking to myself is, is what is it, you know, what is it like in this situation to be the, to be the head failure here? And then what's it like to try to, to try to make something of the mess that you've uh, been left in? Uh, and, and that's kind of what, 
you know, these characters are, are doing in this story is they have, uh, they have this perfect situation and then there, there has grown this distance, uh, and they have to essentially kind of create things from the ground up, which as you mentioned does have, you know, some parallels in kind of what I'm trying to do with, with my poems is trying to re, you know, reapproach these things and, and try to figure out how to, how to frame them. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I was, I was going to point out that you do have them sort of, uh, the, them sort of hitting, uh, what's the right word? That they, they make recompense in a way by, by growing something, right? They, they do conquer the land or they do something good, it seems, at least, if we're going to use that word, um, at the, at the end of the poem, right? They, they, something good has transpired despite, um, their fall. Um, so I did, I did notice that as well. And I thought that was interesting, um, based on your, the background that you're giving about how they're sort of seen as the, the first, mess up in history, you know, that really kind of offset. Um, it reminds me of, there's a debate um, among early uh, Jewish scholars, I guess not early, but um, about a thousand years ago, so between Maimonides and Nachmanides, about the nature of Adam and Eve and whether or not um, questions are good or they were not, or are not good, meaning was man meant to question or was man meant to just follow in God's ways without any questions? Um, and of course, Maimonides being the rationalist, uh, Socratic student, um, he's always like, ideally, we were going to ask questions and try and get the truth through questioning. Um, and that, that reason is the way you do that. Um, so it's interesting that I guess perhaps the Christian ethic is more not Maimonides that, uh, maybe Adam and Eve were not supposed to sort of mess up and get questions and things and maybe should have, uh, been more just trusting or faithful and just, you know, we would have been perfect then. Quote unquote. I mean, that's, that's definitely a way of, uh, a way of looking at it. The idea that there was perfection and then all of a sudden now there's not and, and it's just Adam and Eve who are to blame for it. Uh, but that's the same kind of, uh, kind of thinking, you know, that as I'm kind of thinking about what you said that I, I do think kind of embodies some of that, that Christian way of looking at things is, is, is kind of leaned towards more towards fundamentalism. You know, this idea that, you know, that we shouldn't question even applying towards these scriptures. Like, I know a lot of people um, who have no problem reading stories like these and taking them exactly literally like this is factually how it happened. Genesis is a history book kind of uh, framework. And, and I envy that, uh, I envy that ability to read without, without struggling with that doubt, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm with you. I agree. Uh, I think, that's always been a struggle for me is that idea of envy when it comes to that kind of, I don't know what I want to call it, that type of reading, let's say, because I'm like, on the one hand, it seems I should be envious, right? That they have quote unquote faith. On the other hand, I'm like, well, at least in Jewish tradition and in our stories, you know, Abraham, Moses, they all argue with God and they all ask questions. I mean, and that just brings back this idea of whether or not questions are ideal. And it's like, well, if, if the greatest figures within our tradition get to ask questions and argue with, I mean, literally argue with God, then is it really envious? Should I really be envious of those who don't feel that need to argue or look for, you know, modern interpretation or um, wrestle with what they know versus what they believe? You know, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the fascinating things about reading some of those stories is, um is it's just not a perspective that that the Christian tradition tends to have. It's, you're right. You do read some of these stories, and you have very active dialogues with God. You have you have Moses and Abraham pleading and and making requests and having those requests be honored. 
uh, by God and, and God changing what he was going to do because of it. And you have, uh, you know, very active dialogue type situations like in books like Job and things like that. And, and that just is, is not existent in, in the Christian tradition where it's very much, you know, God, God speaks and, and you fall in line. Uh, I mean, we, obviously there's, there's the idea of, of prayer, but it's, um, I, I don't know. It's not that same emphasis, at least not in the scriptures, on um, God being someone you can actively dialogue with. Yeah, I mean that's how I understand uh, the like the development of priests, right? They intercede on your behalf. That it's not the right. not the same kind of emphasis on individual relationship with the Almighty. Um, right. Exactly. So why pomegranates? Why not? Uh, why that fruit specifically? So you know what I. Um, <clears throat> There's a couple things there. I have a, I have a small fascination with pomegranates because they're such weird fruits. This is definitely not the first time I've written about pomegranates and probably won't be the last. But I didn't read somewhere. I have no idea where. I read that um, some scholars think that the fruit referenced in uh, the story, uh, I, I think traditionally it's an apple is what we say, but uh, some people think it was a pomegranate, which makes sense considering the region. Uh, and I just decided that that's what I wanted to believe about the story because I just like it so much more. Uh, pomegranates are, they're just so interesting. They've got that, like, the hard exterior, but, and then it's just it's blood red inside and it's just weird with the seeds. And, uh, I don't know. It's a very interesting fruit. Uh, like, I just like the idea more. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> as, yeah, as, as, um, as, yeah, I was going to say, uh, in Jewish tradition, it's not an apple. Uh, apple is actually from a mistranslation in Greek. From the Septuagint, oh. when the when the Bible was translated into Greek uh, in the Septuagint, uh, so the fruit became apple. Um, but actually, there's a debate within uh, Jewish scholarship. There's about four or five different uh, food items that it could be. One of them is pomegranates. Uh, there's edrog, there's wheat, there's uh, carob, and I forget. There may be one or more, two more uh, as well. A uh, date dates because they use date leaves to clothe themselves, so it kind of makes sense, right. you know, if they, if they were around a day tree that they would use date leaves. Um, so yeah, there's four or five, there's, that might've been even six. I don't know, but there is a, there are a bunch of opinions what the fruit is, but what's clear in Jewish tradition is it's not an apple. Um, so it's interesting. That's interesting. You I never of, knew that. Yeah. Um, and, and huh. in, in Jewish tradition, pomegranates actually represent commandments. Um, that's why we eat them on, uh, in the new year, right? The, it's the rumor or I don't know. The rumor is not the right word. Um, the legend about pomegranates is each one has 613 seeds to represent the 613 commandments of God. So it's just interesting that, that you sort of got that fruit uh, on your own, um, and there is some sort of traditional uh, thought behind pomegranates being very important to the idea of commandment um, and embodying that sort of idea. So that's just strange. Yeah, well, I think I had read that. Uh, I read that, too, the idea that it um... – that that supposedly the number of seeds represents the the number of laws. I don't have I didn't have the exact number, but uh, but that that is something I'd read and just was was part of that um, that idea that it had to be a pomegranate, which I just decided to make I, I like. So that's that's what it's going to be. Cool. Uh, yeah, it works out. Um, another kind of thing you you were doing in here was uh, anthropomorphizing, um, or we as a species maybe or people sort of anthropomorphize. Um, trees or anything really right uh, they have limbs they move they they sort of involve themselves in a human way so i just i didn't know if there was some sort of significance to this idea of hands being involved in growing other limbs or 
um, if there was something to the anthropomorphism that you're kind of uh, using here? Uh, not necessarily. I think more um, what I was going for was just the, the, the hard work that went into it was kind of more of my focus as I was putting it together. Um, because there's a contrast in the story, right, between the garden that, that produces in abundance and then, you know, having to work the soil. Uh, and, and so my, my emphasis here, you know, it's the whole poem is one long sentence. It's, it's a bit laborsome to read. About, I don't know if laborsome is the word laborious. It's laborious to read. Uh, and, that was kind of what I was going for with this idea that um, that there's all this work that goes into producing uh, this one fruit that used to come so easily. And then, you know, at the end, there's there's this, this fascinating kind of contradiction where, you know, there's this curse, this curse to produce uh, fruit through toil. Uh, and then once once that's done this this weird pride that comes in this I, I created this like I worked hard I made this here myself um, which I think you know as, as you read on so to speak in in you know the rest of the scriptures from this point uh, that pride becomes almost a further stumbling block towards towards resolution with God that's now absent so it, it's almost like the you know, having to work the soil produces you know, the thing that we're supposed to produce almost produces more pride that continues that separate. I don't know if that makes sense. That's yeah. kind of, yeah, as I, you know, that's really kind of think where the orchards kind of, you know, came in for me as I was thinking about this poem, this idea that, you know, we've, we've worked hard and we, you know, we have nature under our thumb. Uh, but do we really, uh, but can we really, or does it just, or do we just have the appearance that, that we've mastered this creation that we've, you know, been told to, to care for? I mean, you're definitely anticipating questions that I have because I my next one was about hu- <laughs> the hubris that we might see in this. There is a weird hubris at the end there where it's like, I made this. I mean, you would think that Adam and Eve are distinctly aware, right, that, that people who interact with God on a personal level are more distinctly aware of their sort of non-ability to interact or affect uh, the thing that is the creator who created the things, you know, and how they should sort of focus on that aspect of it. But they do sort of, there is a hubris that comes along with um, physically doing things and making things. Um, so I definitely saw that uh, in there. And it is strange, right, that we, we sort of take it upon ourselves as we're, as if we're the creators fully, um, when sometimes there are outside forces that might interact um, with what right. we're doing. I didn't know yeah, if you exactly. thought that there was, uh, if there was still sort of, there's this also homage to like hard work in this poem that I see a lot. So I didn't know if you thought that that was um, sort of one of the, let's say, metaphorical messages of this piece, especially nowadays where we sort of see a more digitized, you know, digital world kind of ethic where it's like people might want to work less hard or differently kind of hard. I don't know if you were if there was an homage here to physical labor uh, and the benefits of such. Uh, not, ex- not intentionally, I would say, uh, more just to the idea of, um, of toil, you know, whatever that looks like. Like, I don't, I don't sit at a, I don't, you know, plow fields, uh, I don't, you know, work the land, uh, but that doesn't mean that, that my day-to-day isn't full of toil and exhaustion in different ways. 
Uh, I think we've changed the way we suffer uh, for our bread and our, our, you know, our, our food and our well-being. But I don't think uh, we've changed, you know, whether or not whether or not we suffer. I think we just do it differently. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's kind of more. I didn't have a specific homage in mind to the idea of. of Labor. I knew if I had a more agrarian background, I might. I, the closest I've ever gotten farming is is just driving, driving through, right. so to speak. No, <laughs> that answers the question. I just didn't know if there was because um, because you are saying that you're in an agrarian sort of neighborhood or you drive by it. I didn't know if there was like a um, an homage or an envy of that kind of work or not. Um, but it's interesting how you talk about uh, we've just changed the type of suffering, um, which does bring back to the idea of right, that there's outside forces um, and that maybe we're trying to combat suffering in some way with our own sort of, oh, well, I can have effect on this thing, so then it, there's less suffering involved if I can have sort of, uh, you know, manipulate uh, plants or space or, you know, whatever's going on. But maybe that is sort of a way for us to mitigate the suffering. Yeah, and there's a sense, I think now, especially now, compared to however long ago this would have been, that... Uh, that things are like I think we even we think more now that we've mastered everything. We everything comes easy. Like our food, our food is prepackaged. Um, I, I, I can sit at a desk that allows me to access information from anywhere in the world. Everything uh, we, we can do so many things now that that would have been much more of a struggle for the people that that came before us, or wouldn't have even been possible for those people. And so. I think that uh, capacity for hubris is certainly um, higher uh, because everything we 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 have this idea that we have mastered so many more things that we're running out of things to master. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was talking about this with somebody recently about um, that. In some ways, this the psychological ramification of uh, what's going on now is sort of almost worse than it could have been uh, or should have been maybe because we did think we did have more control. Um, right. And obviously we did. So I agree. Um, this might be an unfair question. Um, so <laughs> we'll see. But um, since you are not of uh, the Jewish, uh, you know, you're not Jewish, um, I was wondering if there was a specific reason that you submitted to the Jewish Literary Journal or what um, the thought process behind that was. No, that's a perfectly fair question. Uh, it was mostly just because I had I had written a lot of poems that um, that were based on these kind of scriptures where our backgrounds overlap, uh, and and I was looking for venues for them uh, and happened to discover um, Jewish Literary Journal, which I was not familiar with before. Uh, that that's really it. I obviously don't. I didn't want to. I, I don't write poems as if you know, I have some kind of Jewish perspective or, or, or background, but, you know, our faith traditions do share these stories, even if we see them differently. Uh, and so I just thought it might be a good home uh, for those kinds of pieces. And it sounds like it was. So I didn't overstep, which is good. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we, when, when designing this uh, journal, uh, we use Jewish um, and, and we do definitely come, you know, we come from a Jewish perspective, but, there is an interesting sort of overlap, as you were saying, scripture and ideas. Um, and in some ways, uh, it's very hard to get uh, biblical or sort of religious-based pieces um, seen 
uh, in more traditional journals, more traditional literary journals, let's say. Um, I don't know if the word traditional should fit there, but, you know, the more popular, let's say, literary journals um, don't seem to think of religious poetry uh, in the same vein as, let's say, I don't know, modern poetry. Although I don't, I don't, we don't draw those distinctions and I don't draw that distinction at all, but I, I think that it is, uh, they do see that distinction. So, you know, it was, it's, I don't find it, um, we've published, you know, nuns, we've published, uh, lay people, not Jewish, Jewish, whatever. It's more just, I think we based on content, um, and how it sort of relates to our ethic. But yeah. So it's just interesting. What I like, I love getting, uh, pieces from those outside the traditional scope, let's say, of Jewish thought, because I do think it helps inform our own ethic about it or our own thought process about the text um, and experience around the text. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Exit Jesus. If you enjoyed, please feel free to share, rate, and subscribe. Check out jewishliteraryjournal.com for more. See you again next time.